Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. So this is possibly his very first letter written. There are many biblical scholars who, who assume that this is the first one written, 1 Thessalonians. You remember that on his second missionary journey, he had crossed over from Asia into Europe, beginning with some success in Philippi, and then he had come down to Thessalonica. And it's here where he, he had some pretty good initial success until the leaders of the synagogue there in Thessalonica rose up and he had to quickly leave and go down to Athens. And now Silas and Timothy have joined him and they brought word of what's going on in Thessalonica. And so he pens a letter to go to be sent back to them. And this is that letter, this first epistle of the Thessalonians. And again, some biblical scholars will tell you this is our earliest New Testament writing of the 27 books. Whether or not that's true, I'm not sure, but there's pretty good evidence that this is very early, at least, in his, in his ministry as an apostle. So, the theme that, there, there are many themes here, but one of them to watch for is this idea of you have heaven, here we are on the earth, and here you have this group on the earth who are looking and waiting and watching for the second coming of the Savior to come down from heaven and reestablish his kingdom. Which and had all been promised. It's all been promised. Remember, in the Old Testament, there were two sets of prophecies concerning the Messiah prophecies of his first coming to the earth from heaven, his condescension when he would come down like a lamb and be slain for the sins of the world. And then the second coming prophecies when he would come down like a lion and take upon his shoulders the government of the people and overthrow all the kingdoms of the earth. So they're waiting for this second coming. And when we get into this epistle to the Thessalonians, if, if you read it, just straight up let Paul's words be what they are on the page, he makes it sound very much like the second coming is imminent, like it could be next week for them. And so it's going to cause some, some issues with, with those people at that time. And you're going to see an overcorrection uh, later on in, in, because of this epistle, and then he's going to correct that with his second letter to them, the second Thessalonians. Where he basically says, heaven is going to come back. Jesus will come back. But it is not our job just to sit around waiting for good to happen, but we should be anxiously engaged in a good cause. And it's interesting how we can watch God's leaders preach, teach truth, and also provide course correction when either there's new information or there's been some misunderstanding or an opportunity to upgrade people's thinking and to help them be more aligned with what will help them to find joy right now and be aligned to God. I love that, that finding joy in the journey right now, as President Monson used to say. It's that idea of don't 
become so hyper-focused on the final exam that you end up failing multiple daily and weekly quizzes along the way because you're, you're so focused on the end that you're missing the means. Well, if that's happening, then once the end does come, it's not going to go well. So this, this whole lesson is an invitation for us to focus on bringing the heavenly into our life more fully than ever before today. We're not, we're not teaching this for next week. We're not teaching this for a month from now. It's for today and every day. What can I do to invite more heaven into my little part of the vineyard here on earth so that it becomes more and more and more uh, a branch of heaven, an outpost of heaven, so to speak. So let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. So Silvanus is Silas, it's just a, a Greek way of saying that, and Timotheus is a Greek way of saying what we would call Timothy, so his two missionary companions. Unto the church of the Thessalonians, now the, the Joe Smith translation says, the servants of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, unto the church of the Thessalonians, grace unto you. Notice the significance here. It's not just us three writing you this letter as, as if we're buddies. It's we're on a mission. We are commissioned by God as emissaries of the Father and the Son to speak for them in addressing you. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful when you consider the blessing to have living prophets on the earth who do this exact same thing. They don't just speak of themselves. They're speaking in behalf of the Lord. And that does become clear in a couple of verses, like verse 4 and 5, there which you go. we'll get to. So again, let, let's jump right down to verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, if you live in a part of the world where they, where they hold open public elections, how does that work? You have people who run for an office and people campaign for them and then a vote is cast and whoever gets the most votes is elected. Hmm, who got elected in verse 4? Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Now, in the English, that, that, the way you word that, it could, it could mean one of two things, your election of God, that you elected God, or your election that comes to you from God, your election of God, meaning he elected you. And I think it's beautiful in the KJV when it leaves, the King James translation, when it leaves it ambiguous like this, where you're not sure which one it is. The advantage of that is both are important in this context of, of trying to apply it to our own life, of saying, huh, God chose you and he elected you. What did he elect you for? He elected you for salvation, worthy to be saved, and worthy to send his son to do that saving for you. You were elected, called and elected, and now what we do in return so that the arrows go both directions is we cast our vote to elect God as the first and supreme leader in our life. 
not just not just in word, but in but in everything that we do in life. And as we move on to verse five, you will see how Paul explains how they can get confirmation of that election process. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we are, we were among you for your sake. So he's saying that, look, it's just, it just wasn't because we preached fancy words. You felt the Holy Ghost confirming in your hearts that the message we had to share was true. So think about that for just a moment, because he's, he's making a, a critical point here. The, the, the gospel didn't just come in word alone. You, you have, for example, you have the Holy Bible. So you have the 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. There are lots of words in here. And he's saying our gospel didn't just come in word only. Well, if you look at some of the statistics across the world, like from the Pew Center for Research, they, they do all of these surveys and they gather all this data. Well, they've identified well over 40,000 individual, distinct, unique Christian denominations in the world, all which have the same words to one degree or another, depending on which, which biblical version or translation they're using. But it all starts with words, and you have over 40,000 Christian denominations, and that's just the Christian faiths. You'll notice what Paul is saying here, it sets apart his message. It's not the word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And the word here, in much assurance, you and I in our church context today would probably use the phrase, with much testimony bearing. We're giving you our word, not just the words here, but we're giving you our word. You'll notice there's a big difference between asking, for instance, students the question, what do we know about, and then fill in the blank with a, a topic of the gospel or something related to, to the Lord. What do we know about this? And then you hear people give the socially acceptable answers that you would expect in church. But something shifts when you change one word in that question. And when instead of asking, what do we know about XYZ, you say, what do you know about XYZ? Or instead of a question, what, when you say, let me tell you what I know about XYZ. Now it becomes more than just the words, there's that much assurance that comes and you can't force this. You can say whatever words you want. You can give whatever assurance or testimony you want, but at the end of the day, people aren't going to change because of things they hear or see alone. They'll only make lasting change because of things that they feel deeply in their soul, and you have very little control over that. You can't force that. But you'll notice what happens here in power and in the Holy Ghost when you give that much assurance, you're opening the opportunity for the Holy Ghost to carry a message a little deeper into the heart and into the life of those individuals or into the life of that individual than if you just speak in general words. This is what we know about XYZ, but when you say, I want to tell you what I know, or tell me what you know. Don't, don't tell me what everybody else says. You tell me what you know, 
and it gives people this opportunity to dig deep and allow the Holy Ghost to then carry the message deep or to have them generate what they what they know from deep within their heart. And what President uh, Boyd K. Packer used to teach is really powerful, that a testimony is to be found in the bearing of it. It's not just in the listening to others, it's, it's in the bearing of it that often you first discover, I do know that. And then he continues and he says, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So I love how he helps them to see that this new movement, this Christianity you've been part of, you did get it through us, but ultimately who you're following is Jesus Christ. And again, he ties in the Holy Ghost. We, you've mentioned this multiple times that Paul is very good at identifying the three members of the Godhead. And here again, right there in chapter one, we have all three members talked about. And I love the fact that he's he's using this word, and, he, and we've mentioned it before, be ye followers. The, the Greek word, remember, is mimetes. Well, you can see the English word mime. It, you, you don't follow, you actually mimic. You're miming what the prophets are doing because who are they following? The Lord. So it's this beautiful pattern so, look at verse 9. For they themselves show, us, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, people have come, and they've, they've given a report of what you've, what you've done and your faithfulness, and how you've turned from this idol worship to serving God, and verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There's your first hint at the second coming. Not just the second coming, but the imminence of the second coming, the, the, the short-term expectation of the second coming, that you've turned from all these idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. So, hold that thought. You're going to get one of those thoughts in every chapter here in 1 Thessalonians, which now brings us to chapter 2. Look at verse 4. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. So he's now, he, he's bearing a bit of a testimony for them and of the Lord, saying, you know this, and God is our witness that, that our motives were pure here. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He's saying, we didn't want to be a burden to you, and we weren't doing this to get gain or glory from you. One of my favorite quotes following this, this line of, of checking, why am I doing what I'm doing? What, what is my motive? What, what am I seeking? What do, what do I hope to gain? 10,000 years from now, what am I going to look back and say, oh, I wish I would have had more of this or that or the other? Listen to this, this beautiful principle. It's actually at the very end of C.S. Lewis's book called Mere Christianity. This is how he ends the book. Listen to this phrase. 
You will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. The end. That's how he ends the, the, the entire book, Mere Christianity. This idea of, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm Paul's saying this. I'm not trying to get anything from you. I'm just trying to give the hope of Christ and faith in the Lord to you for his sake, not for our sake. I just love Paul. He was so bent on destroying the Christian church. He's there on the road to Damascus and has these transformative experience. It doesn't stop there. He goes and spends how many years? We're not even sure. He doesn't, we don't have even an autobiography. He's gone for multiple years, apparently trying to relearn things that he should have known, understanding the gospel. And he dedicates the rest of his life. He basically pours out his life to do these things, to serve people. And here, 2,000 years later, he's still serving us. That's powerful. Now, has there ever been a time where you've had a calling or a mission and you've, you've gotten out a calendar of some sort or, or some way to measure time and you're counting down? You're either counting days or months or years till you're finished with that calling or that mission. I actually did that on my mission for a little while and I gave it up. And that's a good thing. Now, th there's nothing evil or inherently wrong with doing that. The point here that I love that comes off of this page here in chapter 2 is, to me, it's a sense of Paul saying, I'm not serving time as, a, as an apostle. I'm not serving time as a missionary. I'm serving people and I'm serving God. And his focus is on them not the calendar and not the clock. It, it, it's not like a prison sentence that on this date I get released and then I can go and be free now, as if working in the vineyard of the Lord isn't true freedom. Um, there, there are many people who, for one reason or another, say, ah, I just can't go and serve that mission or I can't take that calling because I'm too busy and I have too many other things. And that may be true, and that's not for anybody to judge except for you and the Lord. It's just the principle here is, look at verse 7 and 8 when trying to make these decisions. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel only, because today with our world, you can do that with Zoom. You can go anywhere in the world. You can, you can impart all kinds of things via technology, but there are some things you can't do with technology. And look at this next part. Not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Brothers and sisters, that is a powerful reminder of how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled his mission, how Paul fulfilled his, and how we could maybe apply that in our own church callings, in our family. If you're, if you're dealing with somebody who has a disability or who is lacking in capacities, it's, it's to not look at them as a burden, but rather as an opportunity to give your own soul to God through that Christ-like, those Christ-like acts of service and love for them on an ongoing basis. I love how Paul extends that down to verses 14 and 16. He essentially acknowledges that not only has he been serving them, pouring out his soul to them, but they too have been serving, even suffering because of their acceptance of Jesus Christ. They have suffered, not exactly like Jesus, but they've suffered because they've accepted Jesus. So let's read those. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. So Paul is trying to address the fact that this new ward that has just been created, there had never been Christians in that area before, as far as we know, brand new ward, and they're suffering persecution from their fellow Gentiles. And Paul just wants to acknowledge it sometimes is hard to follow Jesus Christ. It comes at a cost. It's not always a bed of roses. And it's not just the Gentiles who are heaping that persecution, it's the leaders of the synagogue yeah. in that area as well. They're getting it from both sides. Now you look at verse uh, 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our gl glory and joy. N notice the imminence of verse 19. <laughs> Aren't you even in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? It's this idea of you're, you're going to, it's worth it. Keep making that sacrifice because when he comes, you're going to be in his presence and he'll make it all right. Now, hold on, we'll keep, we'll, we'll keep coming back to that theme. So now you go into chapter uh, 3, skip clear down to verse 10. Actually, let's go to verse 9 first. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Just a quick word on this. There are a variety of places in the epistles, especially these early epistles, where Paul's making it very clear the difference between what he's able to do when he's face to face with them versus what he's able to do with the technology of their day, which is writing an epistle and sending it. Uh, that using whatever technology is available, he's saying, 
we can give you some, some correction, a little bit of direction, but it's not the same as when we're with you, when we're teaching you. So some have said, well, everything's taught here in these epistles, and I think Paul would disagree. I think he would say, no, 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 I'm making it very clear. I taught them the gospel when I was with them. Now we're, we're making course corrections. We're, we're helping guide, but we're not teaching the fullness of the gospel through these epistles. We're also helping people to feel encouragement. It turns out that when people are suffering a lot of persecution and struggle, sometimes helping them to remember that Jesus Christ will come and put things aright is a very encouraging doctrine. So this was a really meaningful thing for this ward at this time. We're like, wow, it sure be nice if Jesus would just show up and clean things up. And Paul is kind of emphasizing that, yes, Jesus will clean everything up. And sometimes in our own lives, we wish Jesus would just show up and just make everything right. And we will see as we get to 2 Thessalonians that Paul has to do a slight course correction and say, um, well, it turns out Jesus may not come as quickly as you think, but you still can have his joy and peace now, and things can get better as you live the gospel, even as you're dealing with suffering. And, and actually, as you're talking, I got thinking about some of the Book of Mormon writers who talk about how they feel like they're weak in writing, but far more powerful when they're speaking. And I'll speak for myself here. I have written a lot. It is a lot of work to write versus standing here with you and talking. It's way easier for me to talk and to share than to have to labor through all the words and make sure that I don't get any of the grammar wrong for my English speaking or my English teaching wife. <laughs> yeah, that don't sound good. Uh, you get the idea. Um, Nephi talks about that. Moroni talks about that, the struggle of writing. Look now at verse 12. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So this is another one of those Mimetes things. Do what we're doing. Just love everyone here to the best of your ability. Abound in that love toward all men, even the ones who are persecuting you and hurting you. Look at verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There it is again, this imminent coming of the Lord. Now, we need to, we need to clarify something here. Uh, there's a big difference between abounding in love toward all men, even those who, who despitefully use you or persecute you, if there's abuse going on. In relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul's not encouraging people to go and expose themselves or others to, to open abuse. That's not the message of the gospel. We stop abuse, then work on, with the help of the Lord, figuring out how to let go and forgive that person and let the Lord deal with, with that problem. So, this is more of the garden variety of, of persecutions and hurts that are being inflicted upon people as they're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints who will come with him. Which brings us now to chapter 4. Let's, uh, let's jump into verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The, the word for sanctification is to be separated from evil, to, to be combined with God in such a way that you've, you've lost the desire for evil. You've lost the appetite for sin. 
It's not appealing to you like it used to be. It's not a, as big of a temptation. And this is a process, usually. Some, for some people, it's an event where they have this complete change of heart in a moment. But for most people, it takes time to refocus, to turn and to change the way we're looking at the world, the way we're looking at eternity, the way we're looking at ourselves and others. And over time, focus our attention on the prophets, on the scriptures, on the Lord, and you generally walk the direction you're facing. So if you're following the prophets, looking at them more frequently than you are at the quote-unquote experts of the world, you're probably going to find that your, your desires, your appetites, your passions are now going to be more in, in alignment with what the Lord gave them to you for. For the purposes to be fulfilled. Well, it's interesting. One of the ways he says to be sanctified is that you should abstain from fornication. And this is actually a common theme in the early Christian church. They're trying to help people who come from a highly fornicating environment. Like that is not something that you should be participating in. It's going to make it hard to have a life of sanctification. Now, there's two words here that are interesting. Abstain literally means to not hold on to anymore. And this other word, fornication, is related to a word that is quite common in our language today. The word porn or pornography. It turns out porn is simply a variant of the word from fornication. And when we say pornography, it simply means graphic or expressed or written forms of fornication, visual or in words, whatever it might be. And look, it is natural as human beings that we have natural inclinations. God knows that. He's also just given boundaries. And so we have to not hold on to these fallen nature desire to be engaged in these things and to walk away, to let go. And so Paul's inviting people, feel the joy of sanctification by not being bound down to base nature. And again, as we see today, Fornication is unfortunately alive and well in porn or fornography, fornication graphy. That's really what's going on. So he, he expounds on that in verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The, the vessel being your body, that those, those appropriate physical relationships in the bounds that God has established for them to be used, not in porneia, as, as the Greek word there, um, these non-sanctifying ways uh, that, that abound in Thessalonica and, quite frankly, all of that Greco-Roman culture of idolatry. In verse 5, he takes it one step further and he says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not. God. Stop and think about that for just a moment. If you know not God and you, you don't rely on and you don't thirst and hunger after things of the Spirit, well, there are counterfeits, there are natural uh, releases of chemicals in our, in our bodies, in our brains that can make people feel these, these feelings of euphoria and, and feelings of deep pleasure. And he's saying, don't, don't spend all of your time in the lust of concupiscence or these, these passions of lust. 
because you'll notice none of those last. It, it's a pleasurable moment, but then it leaves you lacking, whereas Christ offers the living water, that, that steady love that is deep and profound and can keep growing, not just between you and the Lord, but in all relationships that are meaningful in the gospel of Jesus Christ on the covenant path at different levels, you get those feelings of lasting love and charity one towards another, and it's profound, that contrast that Paul is offering these, these Thessalonican saints. Then he gives them a little uh, practical, maybe, maybe we could call these pr proverbial uh, items of advice here. Look at verse uh, 11, that ye study to be quiet, to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. So, you're looking for people who are lacking, those without the means, the needy, and you provide for them that you may have lack of nothing. It's this beautiful idea. The difference between the world's giving of handouts versus the Lord's giving a hand up, as you've probably heard, that is the essence of the church's welfare program, is not just to give handouts, but to try to give people a hand up so that they would lack nothing al along the process of growing. And then he says, verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will bring, or will God bring with him. So when he comes for his second coming, he's going to bring the people who have died before. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep, because along, among the Thessalonians, they are so excited about this doctrine of the, the second coming, and they're thinking, oh, but my mother just passed away and she's going to miss it, and my brother died of a disease and he's going to miss it, and maybe some have buried a child and they're just really concerned about those who have slept. And Paul's saying, no, don't worry about those who have died because they are going to be raised up and you can't prevent them from being resurrected. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All those who have died in Christ, they're going to be raised first. I want to point out just a few things here. I was studying uh, the walls of Jericho falling down and I read this article about how the trumpets and loud noise in the ancient world was a symbol of God's presence. And I thought, well, today when I go to the temple, I'm looking for peace and quiet, kind of like what we saw in verse 11, study to be quiet, like reverence. But here, how is God's presence acknowledged? Listen to that, a shout, voice of the arch archangel and with the trump of God. So in our culture today, typically reverence is how we express the presence of God, but in an ancient biblical context, it is a loud noise. He has arrived. Now look at verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now we need to unpack this verse because it is loaded. Notice the imminent nature of this teaching that we which are alive and remain, 
We're going to be caught up together with those that have come out of the grave. He's speaking as if, well, you can expect it. Second coming is going to be any time now, and we're going to be caught up together. Now, the Greek word there for caught up together is rooted in this idea of the rapture. Some of you have maybe heard of the doctrine of the rapture in some of the Protestant faiths, and they have this belief that at the second coming of the Lord, he'll come, the trumpet will sound, and the righteous will be caught up to meet him, and the righteous dead will come out of their grave. They'll come up with Jesus, and then they'll be carried off to heaven, leaving the rest of us here on the earth, left behind. We, we missed the boat, and it sailed off to heaven, and now we're stuck on the earth. Wait, where does the word left behind show up in verse 17? It doesn't. So, here's the idea. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we learn this beautiful principle of at the Lord's coming, the wicked will be burned at his coming. The Old Testament even asks this question, Psalms, who, who shall abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand in that day? Who can be in his presence? And the idea being the wicked cannot abide, and they will be consumed as stubble or burned at his coming because they're not quickened by the Holy Ghost. So, it's this idea of the terrestrial and celestial type people who are caught up in the air to meet him. The world is cleansed, so to speak, at his coming, burned. If you can't abide his presence and you're not quickened by the Spirit, you're consumed. And then what? Then he comes down and creates this millennial day that, that lasts for a, a thousand years. So, a day in heaven's time, a thousand year our time, and now he reigns personally upon the earth. Notice the difference? It's not us leaving the earth and going to heaven, it's Christ leaving heaven and coming to the earth to celestialize and help us to become heavenly. What an amazing concept to stop looking forward to the second coming when he'll take us off to heaven, but rather look for heaven around you today in the earth because his kingdom has come and it's increasingly coming with more and more uh, of God's children bringing that light into the world and more people focusing on him. I like how he concludes. He says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. So, you can imagine the persecution and the stress that this early Christian ward in Thessalonica is dealing with, and Paul is trying to emphasize one particular doctrine, the coming of Christ, as a way of helping this, these people feel a sense of security in the face of a lot of threats. So, it's a beautiful doctrine, and it is true across the last 2,000 years, as some Christian groups have felt enormous pressure, this particular doctrine of Jesus showing up and making heaven on earth has been particularly appealing. And what's important to realize is that Paul gives an update to his thinking in 2 Thessalonians, saying it may not happen as quickly as you guys think, and as Tyler's pointing out, we have been invited now to help build heaven on earth. Now, we're not going to build it so well that Jesus doesn't need to show up, but we don't. We are actually under moral obligation to do our part 
to make earth as much of heaven as possible now, instead of just waiting for Jesus to do it all. I mean, if Jesus is going to do it all, then what's our point for having agency? So this is an important thing. We invite all of us to consider again, what is something I could do today to bring a bit more heaven into my relationships and into my home and in the communities where I am? And if we all choose to do that on a daily basis, like President Hinckley used to say, just be a little bit better every day, we will find there is, as Paul says, comfort one another with these words because we are now seeing heaven in our lives. Powerful. Now you come to chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So he's saying, don't ask me to put an X on the calendar for you because when the Lord comes, he's going to come like a thief in the night. I, I don't know, but it apparently in their mind at this point is very soon. And then he says, for when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And he goes on to say, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let's, let's not have the Lord overtake us like a thief in the night. Now, we've talked about it multiple times. This is the fifth chapter, and he's talked about the imminence of this uh, coming of the Lord. And here we are 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't come. And in the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ, in those, those sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about his coming, you'll hear phrases like, I am at the very doors. Every generation has this feeling, this sense of urgency, this sense of, of, of applicability to, I got to get ready, because we've all got to get ready for his coming. Because whether you're alive or whether you've passed by the time the actual second coming occurs, when you die, it's as if the second coming has occurred for you. So it's that sense of urgency. It would be terrible for multiple generations to say, don't worry about it. Just eat, drink, and be merry for it's 400 years down the road that that generation is going to have to worry about the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's not about the coming of the Lord. It's about our preparedness to come into the presence of the Lord whether it's him coming to us or us going into the spirit world, it's preparing to meet the Lord that is the key here. So these people at this time, they seem to be a little focused on the Lord's coming, but the principle's the same. So you can see why the Lord didn't feel the need to, to overly correct this as this letter's being written. Look at verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on, there's that word in duo again, to be endowed with this power, the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You can see that this early on, this being probably one of his first epistles, it's later on when he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, many years later, when he's clearly had an opportunity to develop this theme of endowment in a clothing and the, the elements of that endowment clothing, it's much clearer years later. So let's not hold Paul hostage 
to what he wrote early on, whether it be regarding the coming of the Lord or whether it be the, the enduo passage here, let's let him grow and become through the process of his calling as the Lord works with him, just like the Lord works with us in our own sphere and domain working along the covenant path. That's a beautiful principle. And then verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And then he gives you this beautiful description of Christ in verse 13 through 24. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, this is what the Lord is like. He just gives you a whole bunch of things that you should and shouldn't do. So it's fascinating when people want to emphasize Paul as anti-works and all grace. We don't want to contend or fight with them, but we want to say, read all of Paul, not just small excerpts here and there pulled out of out of their chapters and uh, exalted above all of the other verses. Because here you get an entire column of things to do. And to focus on other only works or faith is to say, to give somebody a coin and tell them they can only spend it if they spend the front face of it. It's impossible. You have to take both sides to make it workable. And that it is it's how it is with faith and works. Now, sometimes we need to emphasize one over the other, but never at the exclusion of the totality that God expects us to do something with our agency as we receive these gifts of grace from him. So, as you read verse uh, 13 through 24, don't just zone out thinking, oh yeah, this is another one of those long scriptural lists of things I should do or not do. Things like comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, or jumping down, rejoice, pray without ceasing, quench not the spirit, uh, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Brothers and sisters, these aren't just a list of good do's and don'ts. These are, these are descriptions of what a true Christian becomes by what they do. We're trying to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Instead of getting so caught up in prophecies of end times and trying to predict when Jesus is going to come again and preparing food storage for the, the great destruction day, which is not a bad thing. We should be prepared. Get the food storage in place. But don't have that be the end-all be-all. Have who I'm becoming be the more important task so that when I'm so prepared because I've, I've, I strive every day to become more like him, then when he comes, it's not this, oh no, I, I missed the boat. It's, oh, what a blessing and a privilege it's been to, to work through this process of preparing for, his, for this great day that has now come. So Paul sends this letter off and apparently it helps the community. And some time goes by. We, know, we don't know exactly when 2 Thessalonians was composed, but Paul's had some more time to think, reflect, possibly receive revelation, and he provides a bit of a course correction from things he had said, and I will just jump right into chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not so, not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as at the day of Christ is at hand. 
So it hasn't happened yet and it's not about to happen like tomorrow. He goes on verse three, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away or the Greek word there is apostasy first and that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So he's, he's realized that he may have overemphasized a comforting true doctrine and that people were so focused on the potential immediate coming of Jesus Christ, they may have missed the larger plan of salvation God had at work. And maybe even some of this list of things that we just went over in chapter five, maybe they were so busy counting the days, they didn't have time to abstain from all appearances of evil. We don't know. But this is an important lesson because sometimes in the church, we find ourselves discovering that there have been course corrections among prophets and the church. Some people, it gets a little disturbing, like, wait, something changed? And we should look here in the ancient scriptures that God updates and upgrades all the time. That is the process of revelation. So when there are course corrections or policy changes or new revelation, we should rejoice and say, this is exactly what we expected, is that there be ongoing revelation. Now, we're going to follow the example of Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf and use an airplane analogy. Uh, an airplane doesn't take off from, or from point A on its way to destination B and usually fly a perfectly straight course. There are constant adjustments along the way because of wind, because of other air traffic, because of other needs or unforeseen dangers. You're constantly making these corrections. And some would look and say, wait a minute, right there, we were headed in the wrong direction. And I think the principle here is, if you follow the Lord, follow his prophets, let the Lord be the captain and his prophets be the, the, the co-pilot, let them steer this airplane, it will make all kinds of adjustments. And we don't say, well, we're not headed towards point B, which this is a really important concept because sometimes we, we don't teach an infallibility of prophet's doctrine, but sometimes in the church we get this sense that we expect the prophets to be infallible. We expect it to be a straight line shot from uh, our, our source airport to our destination airport. This principle comes up repeatedly when there's this famous quote from Official Declaration 1. The excerpt that comes after Official Declaration 1, it opens with uh, Wilford Woodruff, the president of the church at that time, making this statement. The Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. So some have quoted that and said, see, so the prophets will never ever make a mistake or never need to be corrected because he'll never lead us astray. Brothers and sisters, there's a big difference between God giving changing and, and adjusting directions to the prophet or to the council of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. There's a big difference between those course corrections and a prophet of the church who is leading the church astray. That's a whole different ballgame. When somebody's being led astray, it means they're not even, you're not even close to headed towards 
B, it's they're purposefully taking you somewhere else. They're taking you astray. And Wilfred Woodruff said, the Lord will not permit that. But he didn't say, the Lord will only ever let us never ever once change course or direction because it's happening all the time. That's what happens in a living, breathing uh, organization called the church. Hence, the need to stay right with God's current prophet, to follow the prophet, keep your focus fixed on the Savior, follow the prophet, and know that, expect some variation, some adjustments, some change over time. It's going to happen. And that's not a sign that the gospel or that the church isn't true. That's a sign that the church is growing. It's living. It's breathing. Breathing. It's beautiful. And it's our invitation and it's our privilege to be a part of that as we move forward. Because there's not a single life that follows that straight line. Only the Savior himself did that. The rest of us, we all have to make adjustments along the way. But there's a big difference between that and being led astray. Building on this phrase about the living church, we say a lot, and it's important in a true statement, the church is true. What if we said just as often, I am part of a living church? What would a dead church look like? No change. <laughs> the plane has dropped out of the sky and it's just a massive crash. So what God has offered us is an institution, an organization, where the doctrines of salvation and the ordinance of salvation can be delivered and shared. And it is living, like living water. So just like living water is true, God's living church is true. And so again, maybe we just change our language a bit and maybe that might help us on this path of like, yeah, I know I'm part of the true church, but it's a living church. That's how I see it because we are growing, developing, and we're expanding as more light and truth is received and is acted on. So look at that from the long view, not the short-term, myopic, short-sighted view and say, wait a minute, we're, we're missing the mark. Take the long view. Salvation is a long game. It's not an event. And we're talking not just about the church collectively, but us individually with our progress along this path. So because some direction was given to the Thessalonian saints in the first letter, and they run with it, and they are actually headed astray, Paul gives a correction, says, whoa, uh, some more has been revealed. I probably overstated. I probably uh, told you that it was more imminent than it really is. And instead of saying, well, then I'm going to discount everything that Paul says from here on out. I can't trust him. You stay with it and you follow it and you keep going and let him make, let the Lord correct him. In fact, there's, there's an amazing concept. Um, Clyde Williams wrote an article for the Liahona clear back in 2000, June of 2000. It's called Following the Prophet. In here, he says the following, although prophets are human and have weaknesses, the Lord is perfectly capable of correcting them in his own way. And then he quotes Elder Maxwell, prophets need tutoring as do we all. However, this is something the Lord seems quite able to manage without requiring a host of helpers. 
I love that, that occasionally even the prophets need to be corrected. But guess what? It's not my role to correct the prophet. That's the Lord's role. And he's very capable of managing that without a, without a host of helpers in that process. Also, in that, uh, in that same article, he quotes, at the time, Elder Henry B. Eyring, who said, The failure to take prophetic counsel lessens our power to take inspired counsel in the future. The best time to have decided to help Noah build the ark was the first time he asked. Each time he asked after that, each failure to respond would have lessened sensitivity to the Spirit, and so each time his request would have seemed more foolish until the rain came, and then it was too late. Every time in my life, continues Elder Eyring, when I have chosen to delay following inspired counsel or decided that I was an exception, I came to know that I had put myself in harm's way. Every time that I have listened to the counsel of prophets, felt it confirmed in prayer, and then followed it, I have found that I moved toward safety. Along the path, I have found that the way had been prepared for me and the rough places made smooth. The rough places over time, if you look at it in the aggregate, become smoothed out when you take the long view. They're very bumpy and turbulent and rough when you're taking the short view. And some would say, wait, that sounds like blind faith. You're going to blindly follow the prophet? Um, I would say, no, I'm not going to blindly follow the prophet. I don't follow him because I'm blind. I'm going to follow the prophet because I can see, and I can see what happens over time, and I trust the Lord that he's going to guide that prophet, and I don't care how many twists and turns, how many policy changes, how many procedure changes come, I'm going to follow him because I've learned that the more distant I become from prophetic counsel, the more adrift I become in being led astray by the winds of doctrine that blow um, on this path of life. And I'm probably not going to end up at the destination that I had thought I was aiming for. So with that perspective, if you now read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2, and 3 through this lens of maybe Paul giving now a course correction headed in a different direction, but all along the overall direction has been to bring them to Christ, to prepare them for his coming, whether it's in the flesh or in the spirit world, then you see that others have troubled them by spirit or by word or by letters that the day of Christ was immediately at hand. It's a topic that people just get fascinated with mm -hmm. in the first century as well as in the 21st century, and quite frankly, follow the prophet. Listen to how he talks about the second coming and how to prepare for it. That's where you're going to find the safety, not in the speculative realm of, of the world's experts who, who try to calculate exactly when it's going to happen. You never hear the brethren trying to calculate using the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, or other signs of the times. They are just very deliberately teaching the basics of the gospel that we can love one another, repent, exercise faith, and in so doing, find ourselves prepared. Exactly. Now in chapter 3, when you get there, you're going to find that he, he's addressing a group of the Thessalonian population that has actually taken this idea and run with it to the point where they've quit their jobs. They're now going to the public places waiting for the coming of the Lord just waiting. He's going to come. And now they've become a burden, not just on society, but on the, the, the ward there, 
to provide for their needs. And so he tells them, look at verse 11, this is chapter 3, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. They're going around saying, hey, he's going to come, you should come and join us and wait for him, and, and getting involved in everybody's business saying, come and do this, and he's saying, no. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing." Super powerful. Imagine the challenge it was to spread the message of Jesus Christ among the people of Thessalonica when they see some Christians basically loitering around, waiting for something to happen that never happens. What well-meaning person would say, I really want to be part of that group, non-productive, speculating all the time, and there's no productivity, versus quietly going about doing good. And if you look at the totality of scriptures, most of it is about going about quietly doing good and not just sitting around waiting for God to save us. That is not the gospel way. So I love that Paul, in his original letter, he wants to comfort these people under persecution, realizes it may have gone a little too far for some of them, let's pull it back a little bit and get people oriented on what it means to live joyfully now, instead of just waiting for joy to somehow magically happen at some unknown date. So to finish, let's make it very clear. The day will come when Jesus Christ will come from heaven to the earth. That's not in question. The question is when. But the bigger question for us is, will I come unto Christ before that day? Whether I'm in the grave or whether I'm alive, am I going to choose to come unto Christ rather than putting so much focus on an event of him coming to us that I miss the point of me coming unto him today? And he's given us all kinds of means to do that. And one of my favorites is to follow the prophet. Don't go astray follow the prophet. He knows the way. In closing, know that he is in his heavens watching over us, and he will help us to come unto him, so that when he does return to the earth, it will be a joyous reunion rather than a terrible day, uh, because we've missed out on all of these daily and weekly quizzes causes us to not do so great on that final exam. That's our prayer. We leave it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.